You know, I think the first time you really said something that caught my attention was uh, the whole mutual aid thing where like oh. someone from Black Hammer was giving out cabbage and you, you caught so much shit for saying something about it. <laughs> They're just giving out like uncooked food. cabbage to people. Yes. So yeah, they were like, it's one thing if you're doing charity work, you know, which I don't call it mutual aid. I call it charity work. Um, yeah. You know, it's one thing if you're doing that and, you know, that can be a good thing for sure. You know, I have nothing against it, but when mm. you're acting like you're like the second coming of Lenin, cause you're giving homeless <laughs> people raw cabbage and carrots. I'm just like, <laughs> what are they, where, where are they going to cook the cabbage? My man, like, you know, <laughs> exactly. Kind of, I had some questions, you know, But man, I got mercilessly, mercilessly canceled for that one. It was wild. Yeah, Definitely. the mutual aid fans on Twitter are kind of insane. I've criticized mutual aid too because we have, we have like sanctioned mutual aid by the Novo Foundation here in Kingston. So it's just right. so, and all the anarchists here are like in lockstep with it. It's just insane to me because people talk about this stuff on Twitter and they make it seem like it's just the super online thing that happens but i'm like no this is like this really <laughs> happens in real life it's everywhere, yeah yeah and some people will say well i mean if, if you're doing um mutual aid right then you're you know they're not doing it the right way and you should be building like power separately and there, there's a whole conversation to be had about like um uh, the black panthers and the way they did mutual aid and we alex and i have talked about this before and some people will actually like bring up this nuanced conversation how if you're going to do mutual aid you need to roll it into some sort of political project but i think that might have been more possible back in like the days of when the black panthers were a real you know institution or a real force but nowadays that you know they existed in a time when the nonprofit industrial complex didn't quite exist yet you know there was charity and there was all kinds of stuff like that but it wasn't i mean it feels like the nonprofit industrial complex really blew up in like the the reagan years right um yeah like in response the to the black panthers they nonprofits started doing all the things that the black panthers did because it, it works you know to give people food people will, sh will show up to get free stuff. And then uh, that mode of getting people to do, to do stuff or to like, to stand around with you while you like talk to them about things. Uh, that's what everyone does now. So like, there's no point in doing it because nonprofits can do it way better than any like, organization, but it's addictive to people. You know, people, it, it, it is a fandom at this point. Like, and it, I saw, you know, there, there've been articles that people have shared that are critiques of mutual aid that are like either from within the left or from outside the left. And the, the kind of response that people give to these things, it's, it's like indistinguishable from if you like critique a Marvel movie or, you know, you <laughs> critique like an actress or an actor or something like these people are just addicted to it, to the idea of it. Um, and it's sad, you know, it's like, you just see people like that are locked in. Like, you know, like you said, like with giving out cabbage, I mean, one, like, <laughs> you know, where are you going to cook the cabbage? And two, even if you had a place to cook the cabbage, it's like 10 calories. Yeah, like it's not right. going to sustain you in any way. It's like, it's a side 
if you have like and a piece the, of meat or something. The other thing they were doing was handing out like five dollar two for one Caesar's pizza. You know, <laughs> at the very minimum, you know, these are homeless people, right? They have yeah. probably real nutritional problems. You know, they probably have you know, nutritional de de like uh, deficits and things like that. Mm. You know, at least give them healthy food. Right. But going back to the Black Panthers, you know, I think their breakfast program, you know, the fact that they tied it into their political program while addressing a real material need. Yeah. I mean, I think just the response, I mean, basically the creation of this nonprofit industrial complex, the creation of a federal, um, you know, breakfast program. I mean, I think that showed how effective it can be. Yeah. But we have to at the same time understand that by itself, it is ineffective. And at the at the Fundamentally, it's politically neutral. Mm -hmm. Identity Europa engaged in yep. uh, mutual aid. They were handing out free food to homeless people um, while also tying it into their political project, you know? Right. So we have to be a little bit dispassionate about it and understand that, you know, it's not the end all be all of what we should be organizing in this country. It's basically a band aid to the larger systemic problems that we really have. Right. So. Yeah, but what are you even doing? Like, are you even. <laughs> Are you even going outside and touching grass? Like, what are you even doing to say something like that? What would you have You're me right. do instead? Right. I don't know. <laughs> doing nothing uh, is probably better. I mean, go volunteer for a church or something. If you really want to do that, you know, you will help. You will help some people. You know, charity is right. not, not the worst thing in the world. Right. But yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the thing too, is like people want to act like the, the act of it is inherently revolutionary. And that they're they're building something, but if you look at the the, the contents of the the political substance of what they're doing, there is nothing. There is no basis for it. And if you, if people try to even say anything political while they're doing this stuff, like uh, the the reaction they get from people is way different than if they're just saying like, "Oh, we're we're all giving, we're all giving, we're all you yeah know, show, showing up for each other and whatever." Um, but well, then the, I, the political element is completely missing. I remember uh, when Alex and I were part of the DSA, the local DSA chapter, and we did a brake light clinic, which in theory is a great idea because it's, I mean, it's also charity, but it's this idea that like a lot of people get pulled over by the police because their brake lights are out, which has this chain reaction. And it's a, it's a total material issue, right? Because people need their cars to get to work. If they get pulled over and they get a ticket and they can't, they don't have, they can't afford to fix their, their brake light. And then it, they can't get to their job. And, you know, it's a whole chain reaction. It is a material issue. It is, you know, sort of helping people, but the essential part of that program was supposed to be taught when you're fixing people's brake lights is to be talking to people about, you know, your political ideology and the program you're trying to, to do, and not just to do a handout. And, uh, I don't think we we did any of that. It was pretty a pretty disorganized event, and well, we had people, snacks. <laughs> people did. I mean, people did do that, but they're handing out like literature and stuff. That's it. That doesn't really connect with people. Like, right? Somebody, you know, the few people that do come. And by the way, like even police now organize brake light clinics. <laughs> you know, like there's no. And also, you can get your brake light changed for like a few dollars anyway. Um, because it's a really cheap part but even if you do like you hand someone a brochure that says like oh we want to abolish the police and the person's like actually like you know my cousin i, I just want the, i want the police to come if right. uh, i call them because 
there's actual like murders happening in my neighborhood and I'm just trying to like, you know, mind my own business. Um, and like, even if you do talk to them, I mean, the DSA's program is this inherently uh, not in line with like most working class people, which is why I'm not really involved with it anymore. No, it's a, I mean, it's, we didn't realize this going into it, but it's a, it's a wing of the, the democratic party. And that's ultimately, they're just there to funnel people back into that becomes very clear once you're in it, that that's what they're, they're doing on the, on the outset, they say, oh, you're interested in socialism, yada, yada. And that's how they get people. So, you know, the thing about DSA is I'm super critical of DSA as an organization, but there's a lot of people, I I think, well-meaning people who get involved with it. So it's, we're at that point now, right. Where we're past the Bernie, um, you know, the big Bernie disappointment and a lot of people sort of like hitting this wall and it's like, well, what do we do now? You know? And I think the people have been sort of going into probably several different camps, but the two that I'm, I'm noticing is that some people are just sort of wallowing in this sort of nihilist kind of like, there's nothing we can do. It's all just fucked. And we, you know, we got to just vote the lesser of two evils, which I guess now everyone thinks is like Republicans and um, which is I like, think, yeah. I think there's a lot of crossover with the nihilism and the disaster porn. Yes. A disaster, a crash is coming mm-hmm. around the corner where yep. we're all going to like, you know, have to return to monkey in some way. Like, I think that's like the crossover between what you're describing, which sounds like a lot of, you know, post-left people, but also I think within the left, oh, he there's a lot of the word you invoked the, but there, the within phrase. the left too, within the existing <laughs> left, there's a lot of people that are fantasizing about this, this coming collapse, which I think ties in a lot with like the degrowth land back crowd where um, this nihilism leads them to say, okay, well I give up. Let's just give all the land to indigenous people uh, because they just inherently magically know, you know, what to do and they should just be in charge. And um, because if we don't, we're going to have a huge disaster. And so like, even if you're, even if you're having a hard time right now, like working class, like, you know, you have it, you have it way too good here in the, uh, the global North. And like, <laughs> you know, we need indigenous people to set you straight. Yeah. You have too many dishwashers and uh, washing machines, you know, <laughs> you benefit from, you know, laundromats and stuff. That was a, that was a fun discourse the other day. Oh, I missed that one. Oh, I didn't one. see that. Yeah, Asia was basically saying that um, the entire working class in the United States is a labor aristocracy because of laundromats and washing machines. <laughs> yeah, it's like that Fox News graphic from a few years ago where it says like 98% of people have a, a, a refrigerator. Yeah. <laughs> Things aren't that bad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Going to the laundromat fucking sucks, too. <laughs> I know. It's been hours there. It's like, of course. I don't know. It's just a weird thing. And I think that also ties into degrowth as well. You know, these are the same people that'll say like, oh, well, if, if socialism comes to the United States, we're going to have to give up all of these, um, you know, benefits that we've gotten, all these consumer goods. You know, we're going to have to eat only fresh fruit, uh, only in season, you know, no yeah. fresh fruit, no fresh fruit in wintertime. That's socialism, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think it's just fundamentally I think they misunderstand that, you know, how much of the systems at play right now benefit, uh, you know, just a small segment of the population and not necessarily most people in this country, even though 
you know, we have oranges and pomegranates in like February or whatever, you know? Mm. Yeah, I, I feel like I hear a lot of people um, criticize the way the supply chain works and they say, they say, oh, because these were grown in Bolivia and then shipped to Taiwan to be packaged and then shipped back to the US that this is like the most terrible, this, this is representative of how terrible capitalism is. Um, and I think that that's kind of like this fundamental misunderstanding of why capitalism is bad. And it's not that like supply chain, the way supply chains are organized is necessarily bad. It's sometimes they're optimized, but they're not, opt they're optimized for profits first, right? They're not right. optimized for what's best for human beings. So maybe what's best for human beings is to grow things in one spot, fly them to another, package them and fly them to another. Uh, it it's all up to how we decide we want to like rationally organize, you know, our societies. And <laughs> people think that uh, it, capitalism is just, it's, that's, that's the fundamental thing, right? Is this consumerism I, I, uh, idea, which I think is bullshit. I think it's a, um, the term was created to be a red herring uh, for capitalism. Um, and you're right, like people want to associate socialism and this is like this is like a right-wing trope is that people say oh well socialism is when everyone has like barely anything and it's all the same and they're you know the government just limits everything you have and then you get these like leftists who say yes and that's good and it's like what are you doing <laughs> yeah. what the fuck are you talking about that's not what we want at all you're 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 just leaning into these like negative stereotypes and you're not going to win anyone over it's just, it's like a losing program and I, yeah. but it's, but it, I don't know. It's like a way for them to signal that like they're ready to sacrifice for the greater good or something. Right. It's to assuage their guilt pretty yeah. much. Yeah. And, you know, they, they did, you know, they don't really recognize that, you know, the way systems are set up, it's an, it's the anarchy of production. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the reason why our distribution networks are so bad for the environment is because the people who benefit from those networks don't want to shell out the cash to make those systems more efficient. Right. You know, um, I, it's just like, they just don't see the broader picture. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, and, you know, learning about how communism uh, works or Marxist ideology or, you know, uh, scientific socialism, whatever, you can you can quickly sort of like figure all these things out it's not difficult and i think um people act like this stuff is like really complicated and difficult and i think most regular people kind of like inherently understand this stuff and right. when you start talking to them they're like yeah that makes sense that makes total sense um so i don't know how like how did you carlos how did you get to your understanding of you know where you are politically I mean, that's, it's a long answer. I mean, I've been politically active since I was very young. My dad uh, grew up in kind of the new, new left movements of the 60s and 70s. Um, so I had to actually do a lot of unlearning of that sort of stuff. You know, a lot of like the yeah. death America cut and all that stuff. I grew up with definitely what I would call radical liberal tendencies. Um, definitely a long process of unlearning that, but Basically, I joined a, a political party, a Party of Communists USA, um, and the political education in that in that party has been honestly priceless. Um, awesome. 
reading Marx, reading Lenin, um, other theorists as well, you know, you just get it. And then just being around communists in a party uh, environment, you really start having discussions about how we can practically meet the working class where they are. And that's another big influence of saying that, you know, um, Gus Hall, um, very famous American communist. Um, he has this one book, I, I forget the name, I'll try and link it in the chat uh, later, but it basically, he, he came up with this concept of meeting the working class where they are. Mm -hmm. And that really spoke to me because, you know, as a radical liberal, you'll have conversations with people and you'll try to get them to agree with you to say, oh, death to America. Yeah. And these are just regular working class people. And they're like, Carl, what the fuck are you talking about, bro? Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean death to America, man? Right. You have to but win them you... over in the marketplace of ideas. Right. It's crazy. But then you talk to somebody as a communist. Yeah. You talk to somebody after reading a lot of this stuff. And, you know, I can get right wing Republicans to agree with a lot of the things that I said. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's it, it's very practical, common sense ideas. You know, we basically just advocate for a government that works for us. Yeah. You know, it's it's more or less that simple, you know, and it's you know, we don't want to destroy America. We don't want to make life or like life more difficult for anybody else. Fundamentally, we want to improve the quality of life for working class people. Um, and when you approach people like that. They get it. It's yeah. basically like you said, it's common sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, mo and most people are good and they want, I I, th I really like how people have been picking up this idea of, um, you know, patriotism, right? Because that's yeah. such a good entry point, right? Is people caring about their, na right. their, their nation and their community and their fellow human beings. And I think most people like, that's how most people operate and how they want right. to operate. So that's like such, and such a good and positive entry point. And I know that there, there's like uh, this attitude with liberals, it's like sort of phony, toxic positivity, which is like, it's so phony and it's so repellent. But if we can sort of like be like more of a genuine optimism, not a fake, not like trying to sell you some sort of fake, like, here's the solution. I know all the answers read this book and I'll, you know, follow these 12 steps and you'll, you know, do good, you know, whatever, unlock the secrets. The key is to have that optimism, but then to say like, you already know the answers. You have this inherent wisdom as somebody who is a working class person, you already know. And I think a lot of people, they do, they do know, and they, they know that they're just being fed bullshit every day. And um, I think that that's why that that video of the woman on the subway tearing down the the um, the ads for OK Cupid resonated with a lot of people because a lot of people do, they know it's propaganda. I overheard somebody at Target one day, some just random regular person, and she's like, she's like, do I want this or am I just falling for good marketing? And it's like ex exactly like people know people know that they're being like propagandized too um right. it, and it's not that hard to just sort of say yeah we we all know like this is all bullshit and we can we can do a lot better it's just i it, it's hard though to like really congeal everyone right and and build any kind of real power i think that we just went through a period of like where it seemed like that was happening but it all turned out to be this huge like psyop or something 
with the left, you know, from like 2016 to 2020, it was like that period of like, well, Trump got elected and Trump had this sort of like faux populism thing going. So if we just swap in Bernie, then he'll be the real thing. But it turned out he wasn't either. So there's like the people are hungry for it, but it just, there was, I don't know, it was all fake. And, and now it, don't, it seems like there has to be this regrouping now. I, I don't know. That's kind of like what I was alluding to before is that like, um, you know, people are, are getting this point where they're just, what, what do we do now? You know, I, I feel like I'm at that point, right? What, what do I do now? Uh, I've, I've sort of learned a lot of stuff in the last four years, but where do we put our energy, you know, where, where the NGOs can't get us, you know, what do you, what are your thoughts on that, Carlos? I mean, it's a tough question. And I think what we've learned over the past four years and even before that with, you know, the way the democratic establishment did actually kind of, you know, stifle Bernie and his message as compromised as that itself was, I think you can just see that, you know, there, the, the, the system in place excels at co-opting movements. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even the Black Panthers eventually, you know, the downfall of their organization was very much uh, had to do with institutions in this country deliberately trying to sabotage it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think the answer, and I mean, this is just going to sound very cliche, you know, is to, you know, we need to get involved with a disciplined Marxist-Leninist party. Yeah. Um, we need to unite as much as we can, um, reduce the sectarianism, you know, all this Maoist and like Marxist-Leninist infighting. We need to just move past that really and basically garner as much support as we can and just start from there. It's a slow process. Yeah. But I mean, we have to be disciplined in a way where these these systems at work, um, basically we, we can't allow them to co-opt our movements. You yeah. Know? And I think historically this, the solution to that has been to have just a very strong and unified Marxist-Leninist party. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think having like an ideological foundation really is just the most 100%. important part of doing any kind of like whatever you're trying to achieve, whether it's, you know, you're trying to pass some, get a, you know, build a block locally to pass some legislation or run a slate of candidates or whatever um, you're trying to do uh, to have a a party that has a core ideological foundation really does seem to be like, what's, what compels me at this, at this moment. You know, it's funny about the Black Panthers too, is we actually have, I know uh, at least one former Black Panther who lives here in Kingston, you know, an older guy. And he is like totally, totally in line with like the Novo and the NGO people. And it's like, it's, it's sad, you know, but I think, you know, also people get older and times change and um, you just kind of roll with the punches at some point and you're like, like, all right, I did my part. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, you know, he's, he probably went through a, a whole lot of stuff in his life. I can't yeah. even imagine, you know, but I mean, similar things. I don't know if you're familiar with the young Lords. Uh, they were yeah, part of them. Yeah. Basically the Puerto Rican e- equivalent, uh, the Latin equivalent of the, the black Panthers and a lot of their leaders now are basically part of the democratic party machine in New York city mm-hmm. and in Harlem. And, you know, uh, it's really 
these these were people that were openly revolutionary. You know, they occupied a church in Harlem. They started a, a breakfast program similar to an educational program similar to the Black Panthers. And now, you know, look at where they are. You know, it's really depressing. But I think, you know, we, you mentioned American, you know, socialist patriotism, proletarian patriotism. I think it's of note that in the 20s and 30s, you know, the, 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 the uh, socialism is the American patriotism era of the Communist Party was the heyday of the Communist Party hmm. in this country. They had huge amounts of membership. They had uh, they were a threat to the United States government where, I mean, it basically fueled uh, the McCarthy era reaction um, to what they were trying to do. So I think it's clear that historically, you know, American proletarian patriotism can be used very effectively to organize uh, from, you know, a, le a powerful leftist opposition movement in this country. Mm. Um, that's not to say that we shouldn't, you know, learn the mistakes of what, what you know, maybe the learn lessons from the mistakes that communist party, the communist party made in that era, specifically what Browder tried to do with liquidating the party. But I think, you know, moving forward, it's definitely something, you know, advocating to the progressive side of the American identity that we should definitely be looking into as well. Yeah. So, so in your view, like how does uh, the, the settler stuff figure into the program of, of a communist party? Uh, because, you know, on one hand you could say, oh, well, this is just a, a stupid thing that some people are really wrapped up in and we should just ignore them. Um, but in other ways, like it, it does seem like something that generates a lot of attention uh, when people are fighting back against it. So like, I mean, in your view, like what, how important is understanding what that is? Like how, what is it related to um, in, a, in a program that meets people where they are? Because most people aren't thinking about settlers every day when they wake up and they're like, oh, you know, it's really like a, a thing that's in academia and yes. in professional organizing and like the upper middle class. So like, what, what is the, the, what is the importance of it or not the importance of it? In your I don't opinion. think, I don't think the settler colonial thing has any, I don't think it, it really should be important for any communist movement at all. Um, I do think, however, I just want to make this clear, you know, uh, communists, any communists worth their salt, is going to stand up for indigenous people, is going to stand up for black people. They're going to advocate for autonomy for these people if they want it. Mm. So, you know, Stalin calls it the national question, right? It's a question. So we don't, we haven't gone out and talked to all these indigenous communities and figured out what they want collectively, right? We have a lot of people saying what they want, you know, well, we want land back, we want the entirety of US state land returned to indigenous people. I don't know how many indigenous people really want that. I think it's a question, uh, yeah. but should be open to as, as much as we can, as, as practical as we, as practically as we can, you know, solving a lot of the problems that exist in indigenous communities. And they are, they're, they're pretty significant. I mean, yeah. you know, they have some of the worst living conditions in this country. Many indigenous communities have no access to running water. They have, they live in squat huts with sod floors. They, oftentimes they don't even have electricity. Um, that's, that's terrible and that needs to change. But I think what this settler colonial thing does and this land back thing does is it, it, it conflates what is a serious secondary contradiction um, and tries to suggest that it is the primary contradiction. Hmm. 
Um, and what we have to consider is that while the indigenous question is important, while the question of black liberation is important, you know, that together basically comprises about black and indigenous people comprise about 15% of the population. You know, I hate to say it, but we, you know, we can't go back in time yeah. and turn the United States back into an indigenous land. That's simply not going to happen. Right. Um, that's just a fantasy. What we have to do is be realistic about the problems in front of us. Mm -hmm. um, we have to do the best we can to, you know, abide by treaties um, as long as it's practical. We can't be kicking off like hundreds of thousands of people off their land in the East Coast to satisfy these demands of 3% of the population. It just, it's not practical. It doesn't make sense. And, right. even, and even to say that they don't have, they don't have a unified demand because there's a lot of division within these communities right. themselves. I mean, there are there are elements of these communities that uh, are are in line with with degrowth um, ideology, and they think that you know living standards need to be lowered in the United States. Right. Well, so and then there are a lot of other people. They're like, oh, I've lived in I live I've lived in squalor my whole life. I want to experience you know yeah. the modern comforts of life. I want growth. I want abundance. Uh, in my community and for the people I care about. It's so funny when Carlos was, was naming, you know, grass hut, no running water, this and that. I'm like, oh, these are all the things that I was taking this footprint calculator test for one of, you know, one of these like Malthusian websites that wants, you know, depopulation and degrowth. And like, that would have gotten you a good score on that, yeah. on that footprint calculator. That's right. like, they would have loved that. Yeah. They, they love yeah, that. <laughs> what these freaks want they want yeah there, there are these people that think like oh uh the thing the, the conditions that carlos just described let's figure out how we can all live like that yeah right. and it's, like how is that sick. that's not a program for, for oh. the world that's not a program for the people you know i think a perfect embodiment of this is i don't know if you guys saw recently on twitter there was this fake map an imaginary map because this would never happen <laughs> for like the next 10 years you know it was a map of the high of a theoretical high-speed rail network across America. It crisscrossed America, it connected the coastal cities. It, you know, it would have brought development to the Midwest, all this stuff. It's a fake map, consider that. Literally, the response to it from the decolonial crowd, people say, I don't advocate for it. High-speed rail is an anti-indigenous infrastructure. <laughs> yeah. This other tweet. Literally, uh, the only way I would entertain a transcontinental high-speed rail at the moment would be under indigenous sovereignty. <laughs> and so, like, you think uh, about the conditions I just mentioned, right? Also consider that only 20% of indigenous people live on re reservations, right? You know, this idea that we can't develop the country, that we shouldn't develop the country, like, parts of the country that are just very isolated right now, or that we shouldn't advocate for high-speed rail, which would, you know, directly go against, you know, the automobile industry and definitely help reduce pollution. You know, they don't, they don't want these things for uh, middle America. They don't want these things that would even benefit, you know, primarily indigenous people and poor people, mm. you know? It just seems, you know, they talk about the environment, they talk about how indigenous people are natural stewards of the land. And then they, and the same, in the same breath, they'll say, no, we need to oppose high-speed rail because of indigenous people. Yeah. yeah. It's same just absurd. With, yeah, same thing with nuclear as well, or right. um, or just in general, like energy stuff. 
um, people will say, oh, you know, uh, indigenous people, like they would never want nuclear. But, like there's some tribes that derive a lot of their income from mining uranium. You know, right. I mean, there's all kinds of different interests and different groups of people that are tied into things. And it's, it's so, it's like, it's almost, it's not as bad as murdering hundreds of millions of indigenous people, but you know, a second, a second crime is like to write them off as this like entire monolithic block yeah. to use as right. for whatever uh, talking point you want to well, have. It's, ins- it's insidious. It's like, it's, it's inverted racism. It's still racism. It's, it's using them as like these special magical uh, figures, you know, the noble savage trope. And but, saying, woke. But, yeah. but woke. Yeah. I mean, noble is, savage, but woke. yeah, th- this is like Peter Buffett's whole thing is like, is like elevating indigenous people as like these or even there i don't know if you watched the uh the video i just made about consumerism and this there's this other guy um named matt stinchcomb and at the very end of the video he he used to work for etsy and now he's like a climate degrowth schumacher kind of guy and at the end of the video he says oh you know these people from um i forget where somewhere in south uh, south american country but he says they're here to tell us that we're we're killing mother earth they are have a special connection with mother earth and they're 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 saying that we're killing her and it's like are you insane like you're 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 like saying that these people have a special connection with like some <laughs> like the earth mother the earth mother like i mean it's yeah, so I mean, like racist like, to me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm Bolivian, right? And uh-huh. I, I'm I'm a good portion indigenous Bolivian. Let me tell you, <laughs> there are plenty of reactionary indigenous Bolivians. Yeah, there's a lot of them actually. It's unfortunate. There was this one guy, uh, Rafael Quispe. He was always talking about how Evo Morales was this. Um, uh, what do you? He was basically creating a petrochemical state, and you know, doing like. Uh, uh, petro petro exploitation of indigenous communities. Uh, they're very much a degrowther. Mm-hmm. And guess what happened when the right wing coup came to Bolivia, and Janine Añez came into the country with this ginormous, cartoonishly large Bible claiming she's like saving the country from indigenous beasts. <laughs> this guy joined her administration. Wow. <laughs> okay. So there are definitely indigenous uh, people that are, are reactionaries. And I, you know, I think I just want to bring up in, in the United States context, there's this guy named um, Tom Love. He is the richest indigenous person in this country. He's a billionaire. Hmm. He owns hundreds of gas stations and convenience stores. Hmm. This guy's in the petrochemical business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're telling me, you know, just because he's indigenous, he's a natural steward of the land. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's not any sort of materialist analysis. No. It's just emotional. You know, it's, yep. it's not rooted in anything. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's playing on just the, all these racist tropes, but then just like inverting them and saying like, no, I mean, it's true that all races are inherently this, this or that, but that's a good thing. And we embrace yeah. that. And it's like, what? What? <laughs> Oh, hold yeah. on i gotta measure you with my skull, skull calipers real quick <laughs> yeah i know right we need your we need a, a sample of your dna to see how we should um i don't want one of them fake indigenous people again <laughs> to see if we should <laughs> listen to your opinion on things yeah it's so yeah, yeah and what you're just talking about so i think you're kind of touching on 
what land reform is, which is a process that, uh, you know, a process within communism of reforming people's relationship with land and how property is, uh, property is, is thought of. Like I know in China, people kind of refer to it as almost Georgist land reform, hmm. uh, where it's not, it's not a, you know, Carl Bezier, like abolish all property thing. Actually, people own things. People own property. People can profit off their property. People can build wealth with their property. And, uh, you know, that's been a, a major key in unlocking China's potential is that uh, they have this, this very enlightened uh, method of lifting people out of poverty using land. So, I mean, what, tell me, you know, to you, like what, what land reform is and how it, uh, how it's different from land back. So for me, land reform fundamentally seeks to, you know, end profit and exploitation of land and resources by just a, a tiny minority of, of the, the population, you know, right now, one, the wealthiest 1% of households controls 40% of US land value. Uh, even more, even like a more mind boggling statistic, the top 10% of wealthiest people in this country controls 85% of the land, right? So we have a system of, uh, of you know, land usage in this country that is basically, it basically revolves around profit. Um, so what land reform to me is, is basically dismantling that system and creating a system um, where land use is used for the benefit of all. You know, right now, a lot of um, this privately owned land is used for agriculture. It's used for uh, cattle ranching and all of these things. And they're very, very profitable ventures for a lot of these private landowners. Um, that's basically public land. I mean, that's land that should be used by all for the benefit of all, realistically. Right now we have a system where most of the land in this country, two thirds of it privately owned, um, is used for the benefit of just a handful of people. And so I think the reason why, I mean, we have, I think the biggest difference between land back and land reform is that land reform um, includes land back. You know, if we're going to take, if we're actually going to, you know, try and do right by indigenous people, how are we going to do it under a system where people are profiting off the land? You know, there's a direct, there's a, there's an economic reason for people to oppose it. If we have uh, a land policy in this country where we try to use our natural resources for common, the common good, like kind of what Bolivia tried to set up in, in uh, nationalizing their, uh, you know, petrochemical resources and things like that, that only under that system, are we going to be able to do right by indigenous people? Are we going to be able to do right by African-American people, black Americans, you know? Um, we fundamentally need to challenge uh, ownership in this country if we're going to accomplish these things. So how does that play out in real life? Is this sort of like an imminent domain where the, the you know, the state, uh, whether it's like Wyoming, New York, California, whatever, seizes agricultural like property um and like seizes ownership of it i mean how how does this um how does land reform actually play out in real life 
So, well, I mean, number one, we would absolutely need to end, um, you know, financial speculation over land. Mm -hmm. um, a great majority of land acquisition in this country is done for profit. So de-incentivizing. Um, the... That would be one thing. Mm -hmm. But I mean, for instance, Bolivia, uh, what they did with land reform, you know, what, you would have these large landowners who would basically just be sitting on the land. You know, and a lot of these cattle ranchers, they have huge amounts of land and they're only using a lot of it just during certain times of the year. What Bolivia did was basically created a law where if you're not using the land, you lose it after a certain time. Hmm. Um, but I do think, you know, if we are going to be seriously doing this, um, at some point, yeah, there's going to have to be some level of land reappropriation from, you know, this wealthiest one or 10% of people. And I, I'm not talking about, you know, uplifting, like uprooting people from their land and, you know, appropriating, you know, personal property and things like that. I'm talking about this land that is specifically acquired for profit by these rich landowners um, who then use their position to solidify. I mean, they use it as a way of extracting capital and then re reasserting their position. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So we absolutely have to put a stop to that one way or another. Well, that's, it's, that's interesting because it, uh, it makes me think of this, um, this big change that happened during the uh, Reagan, I'm, not, I'm sorry, the uh, Nixon administration, where um, a guy named Earl Butts, who was the Secretary of Agriculture, sort of made a big change in how um, agriculture works and is, you know, you know, land, the way farmers, the way farms operate, basically, um, because what the way it was uh, during, you know, the New Deal or whatever, uh, said that the government would pay um, farmers to not plant sometimes. Um, and it, it sort of stabilized the, um, the income for farmers so that they wouldn't have to be just constantly growing and, you know, then producing too much. And then the, the price just fluctuates, you know, um, like crazy and then they go broke or whatever. Um, but then that was, that was rolled back, um, under the Nixon administration. And he said, you know, he basically incentivized farmers to grow as much as possible. And then from there, um, you know, they were just growing tons and tons and tons of that. There was this huge surplus. Um, and then slowly over time, what's happened is that, um, small farmers just couldn't outcompete the bigger farmers. So eventually, you know, there's no more small farmers. Uh, it's all just like these giant, um, these giant uh, companies that own like the lion's share of the, the farmland. And so I guess what, what I'm trying to get at is like, you're saying that there's people who, who are sitting on land and they're not growing stuff um, and that's bad. But also uh, we used to have a system where farmers were paid by the government not to grow all the time. So how do we, um, I guess what I'm asking is like, how do we meet in the middle with, with those and, and have that make sense? You know, like, I guess the, what we'd have to do is give land back to farmers or how does it, how does it even work? We don't want to decentralize, right? We, we centralized agriculture right. is good, but I mean, what, I don't know. What do you, what do you, 
what do you make of all that? Well, so right now we have a, a more or less centralized agricultural system, but what does it lead to? You know, um, we have we throw out, you know, millions of gallons of uh, food every day, and we have, you know, uh, you know, one in every three children in this country is food insecure. You know, right. so it's not so much about the centralization of production; it's about who controls that production. Right. So, I mean, we could you know, theoretically take over these tracts of land um, and maintain central production over them, uh, you know, like a centralized leadership over them um, while maintaining levels of production, you know. Um, I think another aspect of, you know, increasingly consolidated consolidated, uh, agribusiness has been to the detriment of a lot of small farms. You know, Mm -hmm. in New York, I don't know if you know, but the, the, the dairy industry here, was comprised up mainly of, uh, you know, family-owned farms that have been operating for hundreds of years. Yeah. And, you know, New York State basically stopped subsidizing them. They stopped supporting them. And now the dairy industry has more or less collapsed, you know. Um, when it comes down to small farmers, um, you know, our government doesn't really care. You know, they, they will support these big farmers um, to the detriment of, of small farmers, you know, nine times out of ten. Right. And then, you know, another thing to consider is that, you know, the bulk of agricultural production comes from these corporate farms, you know, um, you know, it's not to the benefit of, of us. We're not creating a, uh, you know, we don't have a food distribution network in this country that adequately feeds everybody. So I think that's, that's really what we need to focus on. Right taking over these not it's not so much as like breaking them up as it is right taking them over and having them you know be run by individual states or i know a lot of people think of like the nation but we also have states already we might as well kind of like leverage the fact that we're um a nation of states that we can leverage things at that level as well um but it's it is tricky it'll be yeah these are complex issues for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think one thing Alex and I have, have talked about is that as capital flight as an issue, right? Is that like you want to incentivize growth and you want to incentivize all these things, jobs, whatever. But if you if you tax people or you, you make laws that are too scary for capital, then you scare capital away and then there's capital flight. So it's almost like this this kind of thing has to happen in unison where you have to make it so they can't run away anywhere, right? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, there's something too about land reform and uh, you know, the Chinese approach to it uh, that is inherently pro-growth in that uh, unleashing the productive capacity that human beings have uh, where people, if you give them land or you give them more control over their land, they want to do stuff with it, you know? like instead of this idea of degrowth where we're like, oh, we want to give all this land, but only to, only to the indigenous people that right. want to return us to feudalism and to austerity. You know, so there's something about that too that's like the assumption is that most people want to do stuff, make stuff, build stuff, or farm yeah. with, with also uh, assume, resources. Yeah, they also assume that most people own land. I mean, out of 328 million Americans, only 240, I mean, 248 million don't own any property, mm, yeah. you know? So when I, I think that's another br- broader 
thing that we need to address as in any, if we were going to do land reform at all is, you know, the cost of living for many people in this country uh, has been driven up by speculation. Yeah. You know, um, and then, you know, I think, like you were saying, you know, China, China basically gives people land, they, they give people a, a, an opportunity to succeed and profit off that land, you know, we have definitely more than enough space in this country to do something similar. You know, 248 million people don't own any property. Yeah. You know, I think we could definitely do something about that. You know, I saw, um, I saw Logo Daedalus. Um, I don't know if you follow him, but he, he made a point that I was like, oh, this is so spot on. Is the way that you reach sort of like conservative leaning people is to, with, you know, and introduce them to more socialist and communist ideas is to say that everyone should own land. And I thought that that was so simple and so beautiful because it's not about like, oh, we just want to socialize everything and make it all like nobody owns anything. Give everybody a little bit of piece of ownership. Make them feel ownership in their country, in their community, skin in the game. And I mean, owning owning a house has been like a huge game changer for me and Alex. Like I rented my whole life and renting is fucking hard it's way fucking harder than owning but there's this myth that like oh you have you have to be this that and the other to be able to to earn the right to own a house owning houses for like real people you know and it's like no everybody should own their home you know and you know some people won't, will want to own um you know live in a co-op and live in an apartment building and co-own that but like everyone should own and i think that like yeah, I think that this is this is sort of the direction to move in is towards ownership, ownership of land, ownership of your home, owning things. And that's like the opposite of what, you know, the left and the right wing of capital are trying to do right now, which is they're trying to make everything just rented. You know, you don't own any, you don't even own CDs anymore. You don't own DVDs, you don't own movies. Nothing is owned anymore. You just rent. Your time is always borrowed always rented at the micro level you know we see things like airbnb exploding and it's like we got to take the opposite track and say everyone should own everyone should own a piece of this world yeah it's funny you mentioned airbnb because i mean that's aside from speculation aside from these you know corporations buying up property and you know a lot of times they have these so-called zombie houses where they're just owned by the bank and they're unoccupied and they're sitting there mm -hmm. You know, same thing with Airbnb, you know, they basically turned residential buildings into de facto hotels. Meanwhile, in New York City, you know, where this has been like a big boom for, for you know, private corporations and then for Airbnb owners uh, and operators, uh, we have 23,000 homeless children, mm. 72,000 homeless people in New York City alone. You know, these are, you know, they're basically profiting while we've got this huge yeah. huge problem you know it's well, it's insane all those homeless kids just create a new market opportunity for the you know the charitable industrial yeah. complex <laughs> <laughs> it's fucked up i shouldn't say things like that but it's like <laughs> how they think <laughs> that's funny <laughs> it's, all, it's all rent seeking yeah. For everybody, you know, for Airbnb, right. for the, the property owners and for the NGOs. Yeah. Circle right. of life. 
Owning versus renting. Yeah, that's the that should be our slogan, right? Own, own, own. We want everybody to own. There's no reason like you, you, we shouldn't, people shouldn't own. You know, I get so excited when I find out people bought a house and like that is like the best gift you'll ever give to yourself is to yeah. buy a fucking house. But it's hard now. It's 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 like impossible here in Kingston. Um, yeah, I mean, fundamentally housing has to be a right, you know. Um, right now under the system we have, I mean, it's just not treated that way at all. Yeah. Um, and then also beyond that, you know, there has to be this concept of, um, you know, a common good. Mm -hmm. You know, right now the state owns about a third of public lands. Um, you know, the state owns a good amount of natural resources. Um, a lot of that is just given away wholesale, um, to corporations and private individuals, yeah, and it's not so they're 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 not prioritizing the common good, you know. Um, we could definitely, I think, part of land reform is absolutely, um, you know, shaping the natural resources of this country and using them beneficially to develop um, the working class in this country. Yeah, and I basically what Bolivia did was very much that. I mean, they, they privatized their national gas. They nationalized their uh, natural gas resources um, and used the profits to, to immeasurably improve the lives of its citizens, you know? And that's fundamentally what needs to happen here because we have great wealth in this country. And it's like Pedro Castillo, the, the Peruvian uh, presidential candidate said, you know, there shouldn't be any poor people in a wealthy country. Right, yeah. Totally. And, you know, that, that makes me think of um, like an issue where the rubber meets the road here is this idea that's been popping up a lot lately about public private partnerships um, and getting development done, but like basically giving away public land or public tax money as a concession to get developers to develop things that are needed to like housing Um then the problem is right but then the, the problem is like so for example there's a development here like we have we do not have enough housing stock for people here there is um you know they the city won a grant from the state and one the one of the biggest projects that they were going to do was um basically a luxury apartment complex um and we fought for like fought tooth and nail just to get like maybe what six units that were afford quote unquote affordable and they're you know part of it is they're giving away a, a public a parcel of public land uh, they're getting rid of a public street they're they're it's a big handout it's a big public handout um but then it goes back to that thing that i brought up before about capital flight where it's like well we want to encourage people to build you know we we need the capital we need the the development we need the building but how do we get how do we get that without scaring them off or giving away giving away public goods you know how do we hit the two birds with one stone there i mean it's a tough question especially for a municipality in this country where you know you won't they won't necessarily receive much funding from the state or federal government uh, necessarily we had a similar issue in Beacon, um, where I used to live for a long time, where the city government basically just said, hey, 
and just gave away the town to developers. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a way to do it responsibly. I mean, obviously a city government has to work with developers. Um, they can't just build everything themselves. I don't think any city in the Hudson Valley really has a budget like that. Exactly. Uh, right. But at the same time, you know, you can't be giving away wholesale, you know, a public street, public yeah. land to, to somebody that's fundamentally going to profit and just keep that profit to themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's a violation of the basic function of what the city government has to do. Yeah. And, you know, I sympathize that they need to deal with these developers, but what developer is going to say, I'm not going to develop in your town, Kingston, New York, in the Hudson Valley, you know, um, just because the, the city wants to, you know, be a little harder and expect more from these developers, you know? Right, right. Um, we need some backbones on these people, right? Exactly. <laughs> Let me give you an example in Beacon. We had, uh, there was this one building, two proposals for it. One was from a developer with deeper pockets um, who had no relation to anybody in town. They offered to give an entire floor of their building to the Beacon Historical Society, which right now basically runs out of a room in the library. There was another developer, friend of the mayor, Randy Cassell. Less money uh, to develop the pro- to do the development, um, offered nothing to the town. Guess which one got the contract? Hmm. Randy's friend. Um, that's that's the way it works. They don't yeah. really care about capital flight. They, it's it's basically a gravy train. Yeah, you it's know? all who you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing with the project I was alluding to is it's it's all you know they're all buddies. They all give right. us their buddies. Right. That's I mean that's one area where it does seem like. Uh, you know, doable to have to build an actual party and and get people elected who locally who have a fucking backbone and will yes. won't bend over backwards for because you're right. It's like okay, you don't want my you know play a little harder to get. Don't be like, don't be such a loose hoe for these <laughs> you know for these developers and say okay whatever you want. Be like no, you don't want you don't want this milkshake, you know, somebody else will come to the yard and, and I don't need to play. I can play hard to get, I can, you know, because otherwise they're all like, they're fucking us over. And we need is like some people to to put their foot down and say, no, you're right. You're, you're absolutely right. And I've thought about that before. And I'm like, why should we bend over backwards? Developers should be begging on our knocking on our door you know kingston has been getting more and more profile and it's funny you bring up uh beacon because what happened in kingston happened in beacon before it happened in kingston and 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 everyone in kingston talked people who were here long enough to see in the hudson valley what's been happening would always say well let's not let what happened in beacon happen to kingston and it's happened it totally just happened People were, you know, cheerleading gentrification, saying, well, it's good and it's bad. And I think probably using the same arguments we're using now, where it's like, well, we need development. But yeah, no, we we need to play a little harder to get for these guys. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What happened with Beacon was that there was that dead uh, Kellogg's factory that was on the water. And Nabisco. around two, Nabisco, that's right. Yeah. Uh, 
and it sat there fallow for a really long time, for decades. And then they turned it into this, around 2000, they turned it into this global art center, which is DIA. And it's a beautiful museum. I've been there a bunch of times. Uh, but you have to look at like the, what is the productive capacity of it? It attracts, it attracts people, it attracts money, but there's no like production that is like nearly as valuable to the town as when it was a factory, when it was people were going there to work and then they were able to go home in Beacon and build lives there. Um, it's all tourism yeah, bucks. It's man. all tourism, which is, right. as people are learning, it's like this hollow, empty thing that, you know, pantomimes economic activity. There is money moving in and out, but it's not, it's not anything like what it once was where, you know, local people working there and, and building, able to build lives. I DM'd Carlos once because somebody um, was like messaging me or, or you know, replying to me about something, a degrowth type, type topic. And they were like, they, they sent this quote and they were like, the human being without nature cannot live. Nature without human beings may perhaps live better. And they were like, do you know who said that? And I was like, no. And, and they're like, Evo Morales said it. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. And he had like just come out with this quote, I guess. And I was like, what? I I thought this guy was cool. What's the deal with this? But there's, um, I guess the like South American version of um, degrowth is called uh, Bien Vivir. Am I saying that? Did I say that right? Um, bien Vivir, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because Evo does say a lot of this like kind of uh, degrowth-ish sounding stuff. Mm-hmm. But in practice, it's kind of funny because he was often derided as an extractivist. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people, you know, he tried to build a highway through um, this, uh, the Tipnis, which is this uh, rainforest uh, preserve in Bolivia. And, you know, a lot of the uh, degrowth crowd kind of freaked out about it. And he actually had to back out of the project. So, I mean, there is this concept of Mother Earth within, um, you know, Bolivian indigenous kind of circles. And I think he speaks to that a lot. Mm. Um, and he does kind of engage in this, like, na- like the narratives of degrowth. But I think it's just important to note that Evo Morales, like, modernized Bolivia. You know, mm. he nationalized natural gas, increased production um, by every reasonable measure uh, has just improved economic, uh, the economic standing of Bolivia. I mean, they were experiencing 450% GDP growth annually Hmm. uh, for years in a row. Um, That doesn't sound like degrowth to me. I know, you know, that's (laughs) why it's, it's kind of like, I think he's just engaging in the rhetoric a Hmm. little bit. Um, But when it came, like I said, when it came down to it, you know, it was all about building better. Well, that's so that's so interesting. And when we talked about it, I was like, I came to this conclusion that maybe, you know, there's two sides to this, right? It's that like internally, maybe the the environmentalists and the degrowthers have been critical of him from, you know, as an ultra left position. Um, and then from the outside, they probably see that like people in, in the US and whatnot, um, 
kind of look to Evo Morales and like say, wow, this guy's doing great things. So maybe they're trying to sort of color the message of Evo to outsiders and say, see, he's pro degrowth. See, he's environmentally friendly and like sort of um, micromanage his image to other nations and give a perception of something that he's not. Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. It seems like that because I mean you could you could just look at that quote and be like, oh, Avo's a degrowther. Right. And you just you be aware of just how ignorant that is, basically, you know, because you know, if you look at the things that he did, if you look at, you know, his advocacy of developing the petrochemical and natural resources of Bolivia for the benefit of all, um, it's just plainly obvious that he just he's not a degrowther, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um I, I definitely think, you know, a lot of people on the left in the United States, they love to co-opt movements uh, in the global South. Yeah. Because, and I think a big part of the reason is because we just don't have a movement like that here. Right. Yeah. You know, and I think my advice to those people is maybe you should start doing that yeah. <laughs> instead of instead right. of trying to misrepresent, you know, um, the movements uh, that happen in Latin America. So. Yeah. You know, this country has like an identity crisis, right? Like it's, it, it, it's almost like this self-hating thing, right? Cause we're yeah. constantly trying to look to other nations to sort of say, well, they're better. We're bad. You know, a lot of these ultra left people, or then some people will say, you know, if, if they feel like they're on the opposite side of the political spectrum, they'll say we're the best and they're all bad. And it's, it's never like both it's. And I think that's where you know, where we have to come in and say, no, it's both. We can look to other countries for inspiration and support what they're doing. And at the right. same time, build up our self-esteem and say, yeah, our country did fucked up shit, but we're also a country that's very proud of our hardworking attitude, our hard work. You know, uh, my, my father-in-law is uh, a Greek immigrant and I was just talking to him the other week about, you know, about how he's like Americans are hardworking people. You know, he, he said when he, he goes back to Greece, living in Greece, everyone's just sort of sitting around all day. <laughs> it's like Americans are hardworking people. And I think we should take pride in that, you know, like we should take pride in that, that we're very industrious people. And we want to like, want to do stuff. We want to create things. And we're not just a country of slavery. We're a country of, of hard fucking workers. And most people we're not slave owners, you know, we're most people, the proletariat, we're fucking slaves, you know, like this is all part of our, our identity. And we need to embrace like Caleb, Caleb Maupin is, does a great job of like saying, you know, this is all part of our, our proletarian identity and we need to build that up. Um, and yeah, Yeah, it's fuck all these people who are like America, like fuck them. Yeah. It's, it's just silly because you know, aside from the fact that we're hardworking and listen, I've worked with numerous uh, immigrants from all over and they all say the same thing. They say, you Americans are crazy. (laughs) You work too much, like chill out. They're literally like chill out guys. (laughs) Uh, But on top of that, you know, not even just cultural things like, you know, people like, you know, like baseball, like drinking beers, like drinking a cold one with the boys on a Friday night, like (laughs) that American you know and i like it i'm sorry but like yeah but further than that beyond that stuff 
you know, we have a legacy of a pro and a progressive side of our identity. Yeah. You know, there were the there were the people that were involved in the slave trade, and then there were the abolitionists. Yeah. Who were yeah. Americans. The right. first abolitionists were Americans. Um, you know, we have the 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 bosses that you know basically created incredibly unsafe conditions, long hours, child labor, and all of this stuff in the 1800s. And then you have the people who literally fought and died. Yeah. So we could have a few concessions we've gotten from the bosses. Yeah. Um, you know, we have the folks that struggled at Haymarket. We have the folks that struggled at Blair Mountain. We have the civil rights movement. We have Martin Luther King. We have Malcolm X. We have all of these great American people that have resisted the bullshit in this country from the yeah. very, very beginning. Yeah. And I'm, I'm damn, I don't know about anybody else, but I'm damn proud of that history. Hell yeah. And we absolutely should be proud of it. Um, and we absolutely should use that um, to, to, to identify with and develop that progressive side of that identity. Um, and I think that that is, could be more potent than anything else, any sort of not, uh, revolutionary nihilism that these people have, you know, yeah. death to America, you know, how does that message resonate with the people in this country? I know. Compared to saying like, hey, we actually do have like a good history that we should lean on and identify with and learn more about. You go out and talk to people about that, about these things. Most Americans don't even know about Blair Mountain. Yeah. You know, um, it's it's just a matter of, reaching the masses in a way that they can identify with. Yeah. And a lot of these people, they get upset, you know, they oh, American patriotism is inherently just evil and all this stuff. And it's just, that's just a moralistic argument at the end of the day. Yep. yep. If you think about it uh, rationally from a materialist perspective, patriotism, uh, you know, how effective it can be depends on the class character of those using it. You know, a lot of these people say, oh, you're an American patriot. You're a chauvinist piece of shit. Like, <laughs> would you go to the people that were fighting and dying in Blair Mountain, waving American flags and tell them they're chauvinist pieces of shit? Right. You know, they're literally fighting the state. Um, you know, it depends on the class character of the people engaging in that proletarian activity. Yeah. And so there's a difference between working class people doing that and bourgeois people engaging in patriotism to nationalistic ends you know yeah. trying to get people to march off to war and things yep. like that yeah so i think we need to we need to think rationally be a little more dispassionate i understand why people are so repulsed by our history by the founding legacy of this country because you know what frankly it is disgusting mm -hmm. but that's not the entire story and i think that that message really needs to start um, resonating with people on the left otherwise we're just going to be stuck in this rut where we're constantly arguing about tactics and things like that. Yeah. Um, get out there. Yeah. And talk to people with these these like death to America talking points and see how ineffective it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know. Just and talk then, to know, people. If that, if that doesn't work, please like just try. Yeah. These people with proletarian socialism. I promise right. you, you won't turn into like a devil with horns if you just try it. You know. Get out, get out there and give out some cabbage and try the death to <laughs> America shit. <laughs> just whole heads of cabbage, just chuck them at people. <laughs> <laughs> like they couldn't even cook the cabbage and like make a nice little like throw some like sausage in there and some, some carrots seasoning. and then say here's a hot bowl of cabbage and 
you know, this dish my my grandmama taught me and I want yeah, to no. warm your belly and warm your soul and join me, comrade. No. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, no, just take this fucking raw head of cabbage and be grateful, you fucking dominant. The best part of that was that, you know, I've worked food. I work in food and I can recognize year old cellared cabbage when I see it. And they were like, fresh farmer's market produce. I'm like, no, no, that's year old cellared carrots and cabbage. Oh, my God. Friend. Yeah. Like that was them, funny. Giving them out, giving out the like the, the leftover crumbs and shit. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's such a tie with that too. And the, the idea of this, the urban agri- urban agriculture, uh, where like, you know, like even if you make cabbage in, in your yard in a small city or there's an urban farm where you make some cabbage, like the amount of calories, like you, you need land, you need a lot of land to produce the amount of calories to sustain human life. And even if like, like I think it's something like you need 6,000 square feet to make enough calories for half a human being. So I guess 12,000 is one human being for a year. If the farm is like running at full tilt, full capacity. And like, that's just so much bigger than the average like lot in a city. And so much bigger than what an urban farm can do. And it's just like, it's so backwards. And it, it inherently is part of degrowth. This idea that every city is gonna have all these rooftop gardens and community gardens where they're gonna make cabbage and carrots and potatoes. It's just not gonna be enough for people. Like you can bulldoze the whole city and do a farm and it's still not gonna be enough for the number of people that live there. Like it's all about, it's all about not having enough for people and we're just naturally gonna like die off, I guess, until it is enough for people, for the people. They don't understand that the, the level of production necessary to, to feed our people, you know, it yeah. requires a vast amount of production. And these are, these are people that say, like, Oh, we need, we can stop global distribution networks of food. We can just revert to a local economy and all of that stuff. And what they don't understand is that not only is, are you going to have trouble providing enough food for people at a local level, but you also become susceptible to climate related issues. So like if you have a bad year, yeah, yeah, you know, and you're living in Massachusetts and you don't have a global network <laughs> to get, get food from anymore, right, right. you're gonna have a real rough winter. And, you know, they don't, under- they don't understand that, you know, before, you know, uh, modern food network distribution, um, there were famines. Yeah. There were kids that had, were like, you know, mal- yeah. like had to, you know nutritional deficiencies and things like that the well yeah, meaning, so, the well-meaning ones don't don't know that the the other ones know that and they're like yeah that's the plan like, yeah. you know, and, and, and imagine too like with the the reality of climate change that oh let's become more reliant on the weather yeah it's like it's just it's like solar with, versus yeah. nuclear yeah right yeah like like right here in new york state i, I think 200 200 out of 365 days are cloudy and we're like, yes, let's let's become reliant <laughs> on, on solar the sun, yeah. yeah, the sun that we can't see half the yeah. time, and in the winter too, like it becomes useless. So it's the same right. thing. And also, just think about how susceptible 
how weak a, a society and a state would be if you are if you are trying to cut off global supply networks and the global you know just become isolationist in a way. Uh, where was I going with that? You you made the point yourself, Carlos. I'm sorry. I just trailed off. I pulled the Joe Biden. Was it? Was it? I mean, you're yeah. You're just less resilient to what Mother Nature throws at you, right? We're like we are a global community, and we should be all working together to like. Oh, if if there's a big tsunami, then we all come in and help the place that's hit by the tsunami. It's not like yeah, each little separate you know pocket of yeah. you know just worry always- about your own stuff. Yeah. It's always funny to me when these, you know, people that are like, yeah, I'm a communist and they advocate for degrowth there. They're like, oh, we need to shut down global systems of distribution. And I'm like, but you're a communist. You want to have eventually world communism, right? Like, how are we going to get world communism if we can't even distribute food? (laughs) You know, what are you talking about? Yeah, Yeah. it's it's incompatible, right? Yeah, because. Yeah. And also, yeah. yeah, And your program, if your program is about setting up this system of degrowth and fragility and having you know power that doesn't always work because we're degrowing and it's painful like it's going to be so easy to overturn that shit you know and like reactionary reactionary people are going to take over easily because you're going to be hurting people you're going to be killing people by not giving them enough food by cutting them off from the world by not giving them enough energy and we all know and, that people work work better together when they're when they're really hungry and desperate and things yeah. are scarce. That's, yeah. that's when everyone just gets along brilliantly. Yeah. So when it's we have of, scarcity. It's so bad. <laughs> yeah. No, They're accelerationist in a way. It is. Yeah. It is yeah. accelerationist. Yeah. Right. Because the smart ones, they inherently believe that there's too many people on planet Earth. And how to create the conditions to have a die-off than to cut off people's access to food, make energy harder to access, uh, and just like live in austerity. I mean, that's going to kill a lot of people. So (laughs) these people are like Dr. Evil, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's crazy. Yeah. It's very pessimistic. It's very like humans are bad. And that's where I start to see like where people bring in sort of Christianity into communism because Christianity has this, you know, um, the, the sort of theme of Christianity is that God created man, you know, the earth for man to, you know, leverage and to, to steward. And, and I think that that really is a great message that like, we're, we are divine. We're part of, you know, God's plan and, and that we should use this earth and steward it. And, um, it is for us. <laughs> we, are, we are divine. Like, that's a good thing, you know? Not this like we're a cancer on the planet, right? Like, what the hell? We're we're we are a fucking miracle. If you look at the history of the Earth, like everything that came before us is you know not doing what we're doing, and we're we're just like amazing, and we should do amazing things. Yeah, fundamentally, at the end of the day, you know, I think you know, as socialists, we should stand for growth. Mm-hmm obviously sustainable growth you know and i don't think any of us are really talking about destroying the environment or anything like that right but i think that we recognize that under the current system you know uh, let me just rephrase it differently 
if we did achieve socialism, right, we wouldn't have to engage in degrowth because a lot of the reasons we pollute, I've said this before in this podcast, have to do with the profit incentive, have to do with capitalism Mm -hmm. and, you know, cutting costs and things like that. When production is controlled by working people for working people, that dynamic will change. And until we reach that point, it's not going to happen. So I think it's very important to differentiate our position from these degrowthers because they're, they're basically buying into, like you said earlier, the whole socialism is gray concept. Yeah. Um, And fundamentally, I just don't think you're going to appeal to um, working people in this country by telling them they deserve less, you know, especially when we have 50, over 50% of this country working paycheck to paycheck. We have almost 50% of this country that can't afford one missed uh, paycheck, um, massive amounts of food insecurity. How can you come to people experiencing those things and tell them they need, they deserve less? It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. In many ways, large sectors of this country uh, in the age of neoliberalism have become undeveloped. You know, you look at Detroit, you look at Flint, you know, it's been a backwards process mm-hmm. in terms of development. And these degrowthers, it seems like they want to double down on that. And that's just absurd. Yeah. Detroit is actually a like an outpost for the same the same um, like Peter Buffett Novo Network that is really into like the degrowth stuff. Detroit is another outpost city for them where they have a lot of nonprofits doing this same localization degrowth. So if anybody's listening, what degrowth is the ideology, but the way that it plays out is it's usually called localism when it's implemented um, or it's called transition town or transition network or new economy. This is how it's played out um, like literally in places as they call it localization rather than degrowth. And that's sort of like how they get away with it. But yeah, indeed, Detroit is one of their outposts. And like to, to speak to what you were just saying is like, I think this idea of like growth versus no growth, what it really is about is about rational growth. It's about growing the, the right ways, right? Growing the, we have tons of potential. The human condition has tons of potential to grow in all the right ways. But what, when we're, we're run by an irrational economic system like capitalism. We the growth the growth happens in all these, sometimes in a good way, but like in lots of other ways that just don't make any sense, are irrational because we're run by the profit motive rather than the people motive. So if we can change the motive of the, the mode <laughs> of the production, we're running it for the people and not for profits. We can grow in 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 really good ways that help the environment that help people um because it's all the same thing at the end of the day and and yeah people get caught up in this growth versus no growth and i even the word growth is like kind of a red herring at this point but yeah i think that's a, a great point though i mean yeah i mean it's not about growth of when it's not about growth of like private sectors driven by profit, 
and when it's growth driven by the common good, mm-hmm. you know, when you say common good, do you think, do these people think that we mean like we're going to destroy the environment? <laughs> right. That's not, that's not good for common people, you know? Right. right. So, we're going to get rid of all think, the trees for kind of the common good. Right. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think people like trees, trees like right. people. <laughs> They're necessary. <laughs> yeah and we and we like cows too and cows like people and th- right. that's where like the vegan people too they're like they're insane <laughs> too because they're like oh we should get rid of all you know animal agriculture but it's like then cows wouldn't exist and cows like existing you know it's called humane treatment of you know domesticated animals because they benefit from their relationship with humans you know because <laughs> we give them good lives we like extend our prosperity to a a select few species that get to like evolve with us and i think that's a beautiful thing and uh it's funny when they mention honeybees you know a lot of them they want to stop honeybee exploitation they call it and then uh yeah i mean we basically wouldn't have any fruit no matter what you know Mm -hmm. i mean they is playing a vital part in agriculture um specifically around fruit uh production um so yeah i mean i think a lot of veganism definitely ties into degrowth narratives as well yeah not all i've definitely met some vegans that you know are smart and you know consider other issues and things like that and they're not vegan reductionists as i like to call them right i usually what i the way i differentiate it is by calling people saying it's uh political vegans when when it's about when it's about your politics people who just eat a vegan diet like uh, whatever you know like eat whatever you want (laughs) i have no problem with your consumption choices right Uh, it's the contrary i want you to eat i want you to eat whatever makes (laughs) you happiest (laughs) right um so yeah, that, that's, it's the political veganism, I think is. Right. The... And it's, that's funny too, because the, you know, vegan, the vegan diet is so reliant on global production, Yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, without palm oil, I don't know where vegan food would be right now. So. Right. Right. Yeah. It's palm oil. I don't know anything about it. They use it in a lot of vegan pro- products. It's like a rich uh, fatty oil that they use in in lieu of butter oftentimes okay yeah yeah and humans kind of like require fat in their diet i mean you know that you've done the the paleo diet that's what that's all about fancy (laughs) it's all about and that's like just eating meat and vegetables and yeah no i want to do the i want to do the jordan peterson diet just Just all all, just all meat just massive amounts of meat raw eggs Xanax. <laughs> oh, that man. What a silly man. <laughs> yeah. He kind of jumped the shark, though, didn't he? Yeah, he did. <laughs> People are like, yeah, we don't listen to that guy anymore. Yeah, he, he's not a big bad anymore to like the bread tube crowd. <laughs> yeah. He just has like humiliated himself so much that they can't e- they they can't even like credibly say that, oh, this man is causing like fa- all the f- secret fascists to like to bloom yeah now they're all after tucker carlson and um jimmy Dore. jimmy Dore. wow i'll never understand that you know they're like jimmy Dore is a red brown fascist I'm like, <laughs> he's like what he's just like a left-leaning like liberal 
Yeah. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> I know. Uh, I know people, they, they just want to manufacture whatever kind of drama they can get out of it. Outrage. Yeah. Outrage. Yeah, exactly. You've been listening to the Space Commune podcast. I'm Fox. I'm Alex. And I'm Carlos. Carlos is our buddy on Twitter. You can uh, follow him, Andy and Comintern, on Twitter. Give him a follow. He's yeah. he's based as hell. He goes after the, the Radlibs all the time. <laughs> Anytime you hear a discussion about cabbage, uh, you'll find him there. You'll find me, yeah. <laughs> if you type cabbage, cabbage, cabbage and send it out in a tweet, I will find it. And I will <laughs> That's how you summon the Indian like, common turn. Yeah, somebody like, could, somebody could totally use. like, yeah. Somebody could sign off you by like, just posting a picture of a table with cabbage on it and saying like, yeah, feeding my community today, and then you, you'll you'll appear out of nowhere, <laughs> like an apparition. Yeah. Cabbage wars. My vein throbbing in my forehead. Yeah. <laughs> I know you do you do work on there with those guys. I yeah, I'm always with them for sure <laughs> you got to keep them honest let's just say that that's right that's right who is that one dude who like